Hello and welcome to the JCBC Podcast. My name is Sean, and I'm so grateful that you found our podcast. Listen, the JCBC Podcast is a collection of several sermons that have been preached over the years at Johns Creek Baptist Church. I pray that as you find these sermons and you listen to them, they would meet you where you are in your journey. And I trust that God will do something in these words to lift up your head, if only for a little while. So go ahead and subscribe to us and follow along. So let's turn together in Matthew's gospel to Matthew 25. And in Matthew 25, we'll begin reading in verse number one. This, the final parable in our series, the parable of the bridesmaids. Matthew 25, verse 1. Then the kingdom of heaven will be like this. Ten bridesmaids took their lamps and went to meet the bridegroom. Five of them were foolish and five were wise. When the foolish took their lamps, they took no oil with them, but the wise took flasks of oil with their lamps. As the bridegroom was delayed... All of them became drowsy and slept. But at midnight, there was a shout, a cry. (laughs) Look, here is the bridegroom. Come out to meet him. Then all those bridesmaids got up and trimmed their lamps. The foolish said to the wise, give us some of your oil for our lamps are going out. But the wise replied, no, there will not be enough for you and for us. You had better go to the dealers and buy some for yourselves. And while they went to buy it, the bridegroom came. And those who were ready went in with him into the wedding banquet, and the door was shut. Later, the other bridesmaids came also saying, Lord, Lord, open to us. But he replied, truly, I tell you, I do not know you. Keep awake, therefore, for you know neither the day nor the hour. It's the word of the living God. May we now pray that God would add a blessing to the hearing and to the doing of it. Let's bow together. God, we are now yielded before you. And we are gathered around your sacred word and our mutual hope is that you would speak a word to us so deeply that it changes everything in us. In the name of Christ our Lord, amen. So today we do come to the conclusion, the culmination, the consummation of 17 weeks of study in the parables of Jesus. All through these past many weeks, we have been pursuing a central truth, and it is this. It is our conviction that Christ came to proclaim that there is a A kingdom not made with these hands. 
And that kingdom, the kingdom of God, is breaking into our current kingdom, domain, reality all the time. And if there is this domain or this realm of God's love that is so all-encompassing and is always so present that if we can tune our ears and focus our eyes, we might be able to see that there is no realm outside the realm of God's love. But if we, can, if we can focus and if we can tune our ears, we can begin to see erupting all over the place in every small and big conversation, in every encounter that we have with family, friends, and even those whom we would not call friends. <laughs> we can see the kingdom, the domain, the realm of God's love breaking forth, and we can participate in it. We can engage it, and it can transform everything. So he taught in parables to show us what it looks like to recognize that reality, the kingdom reality all around us. And today, we end with a parable that can be the most sobering of them all because it proclaims a truth that every one of us has the capacity to experience the breaking open of the kingdom of God. And yet every one of us can absolutely miss it. So he tells the story of the ten bridesmaids, the parable of the ten bridesmaids. We're told that five were wise and five were foolish. Before we can get into understanding the truth behind what he's up to when he teaches us about the ten bridesmaids, we have to understand something about first century wedding traditions. We have to understand something about how weddings and marriage worked in the first century in order for us to understand the power or the punch that this parable actually has. So it seems that in the first century, Jewish weddings or marriages really took place in two stages. There was the engagement and there was the ceremony. That's not unlike it is today, except the engagement period was a terrifically deliberate time of preparation. There would be a meal, a banquet, a, a kind of feast where the families would come together to declare that these two were being brought together. It was a very official, law-binding moment. They went into a contract, the, the erusin, we, we call this period. Incidentally, this is the time period in which we find Joseph and Mary when we open up the Christmas story. They're betrothed to one another. They're in this engagement period. It begins with this dinner in which the arranged marriage or the proposed marriage, had both during that century, would declare their affection and their commitment to one another. And then they would go into one year of preparation, every kind of preparation that you can imagine, not just mental, emotional, relational, psychological preparation, but financial preparation, vocational preparation. So the bridegroom, for example, would take this year-long engagement, sometimes more than a year in some cases, and he would learn the family trade. He would apprentice with his father. He would learn the business so that he would have income. He would make all kinds of preparations. The most interesting for me is this. It's a preparation called the, ins uh, the insula. The insula, during this period of time, for one year after the engagement, after the proposal, after the dinner, 
He would spend time building an extension upon his family home, the place where he grew up. So they would put an add-on extension. They would build an, an extra room where he and his new bride would live. Well, if the father had several children, especially male children, well, that home in which the mother and father first married and came together, it could have several extensions. One extension for the oldest brother, one for the youngest. And so it could have many different uh, add-on rooms or living spaces. And it took a year to prepare and decorate and get ready. That was the first century version of registering down at, you know, Target or wherever you register now, right? But back at the wedding engagement dinner, there was a moment when the bridegroom would take, a, would take a glass of wine and he would hold up the wine to make a toast to his betrothed. They were about to enter into a year of preparation and he would say to her, beloved, and one of the traditional toasts, one of the traditional blessings he would say, beloved, in my father's house are many dwelling places, many rooms. If it were not so, I, I, I would have told you. But I go now to prepare a place for you so that where I am, you may also be. Sound familiar? Yeah. For those of you who may be new to the Christian faith or perhaps exploring the Christian faith for the very first time, you may not recognize that those words are the very same words that our Lord Jesus spoke to his beloved friends around a table for the final time. Just after dinner and just after he washed their feet, he, he looked into their eyes and recognized that there was fear and uncertainty in the room. It was thick thick with anxiety because he had just told them where he was going and what was going to happen and they were aware that they would, he would be arrested and he would be crucified and, and in their minds that moment represented the end of everything that they had been working for. In that moment it could not have been more desperate or more despairing because in that moment they recognized this is where it all ends. This is where it dismantles, it collapses everything we've been working for. It now comes to a, to a crashing end. And, they, and he sees this in, in their faces. And he says to them, beloved, in my father's house, there are many dwelling places. If it were not so, I would not have told you. But I'm going now to prepare a place for you so that where I am, you may also be, he was proclaiming to them. Maybe the word that needs to be proclaimed to you, that when you come to the moment when it looks like everything is over, when it all comes crashing down and it seems as if all the momentum of the past several years and all of the hopes of the past energies that you've spent moving and, and progressing have come crashing down. Just when you think it's at the very end, Christ breaks in to say it's at the very beginning. That the very place where you think it's all finished, God says it has only just begun. What if the thing that you're facing, what if the trouble that you're facing or the unanswered question that you have or the anxiety that you even carried in this room. What if it's preparation 
for a dwelling place that is to come. Because he introduces a reality that night that sometimes the thing that has already come is still coming and on its way. This is where in the New Testament we, be, we begin to embrace that, that best metaphor that describes the relationship between Jesus and the church. Paul says that he is the bridegroom and we are the bride of Christ, the church. And everything that we endure, all the, the valleys that we have to muddle through, it's not despair. It's the preparation of a thing that's to come. And in the engagement, it's the same thing. The groom at the engagement party says, listen, we're about to enter into a thing, but we're already in it. You get it? You see what I'm saying? We're already there. There's a legally binding contract at the wedding, at the, at the engagement dinner. In other words, you have to go through a, a divorce to break your engagement. That's why Mary and Joseph went through the drama that we read about in Matthew and, and Luke's gospel. And so it's as if the groom is saying, we're in this thing. It's already here. We've made this decision. But there's still something coming. And what's coming is even more spectacular than this dinner that we share and celebrate tonight. It's possible that the thing that has already come is still on the way. So the first century has two steps to the marriage. The first is the engagement the second is the ceremony. Now, now that's a party. In the first century, the wedding ceremony usually took place at the home of one of the parents of the bride or groom. But it was preceded by processionals, a parade by the bride and the bridesmaids, a parade by the groom and the groomsmen. And we do that today, but man, we've got nothing on the way they did it then. Because the processionals that preceded the ceremonies lasted all into the night and they went from village to village, town to town. And if a parade, a wedding processional passed through your little town, part of the cultural expectation is if there comes this singing and dancing and eating and drinking and laughing and celebrating, well then what am I to do? I'll join in. And you pick up a tambourine and you start to sing and you move with it. So there is a sense in which in the first century, what a great parable it is. That this procession of joy grows the further along you travel it. Didn't I hear somewhere somebody sing, the longer I serve him, what? the sweeter he grows. There is this processional underway. It's already here, but it's still going somewhere. And as it moves, it builds and it grows. And those who are hungry for hope and those who are looking for joy, they add their own part to the procession until they get to the wedding ceremony. And what must be understood as a backdrop to this parable is there was this unfettered joy, this sense of giddy expectation about what is about to go down a giddy expectation so high that it almost rivals the um, the giddy anticipation of another wedding happening in 27 days from now <laughs> or another wedding happening uh, 154 days from now all right there oh kept they're talking about her not you, right? There is this growing, percolating, simmering hope that gets, gets 
built bigger and bigger into this extraordinary joy. Now, this is what has caused um, one priest and writer to say these words about the thing that is here and the thing that is already coming. Robert Farrar Capone is a priest and writer. He says of this parable, what we are watching for is a party. And that party, he's talking about the wedding feast, he's talking about the kingdom of God. That party is not just down the street making, its, making up its mind uh, when to come to us. It is already hiding in our basement, banging on our steam pipes and laughing its way up our cellar stairs. The unknown day and hour of its finally bursting into the kitchen and roistering its way all through the whole house is not dreadful. It's all part of the divine lark of grace. God is not our mother-in-law coming to see whether her wedding present china has been chipped. Great line. He's a funny old uncle with a salami under one arm and a bottle of wine under the other. We do indeed need to watch for him, but only because it would be such a pity to miss all the fun. That is the kingdom of God. Beloved, it is here, but it's still coming. And what a pity it would be to miss all the fun. And yet we open up this text that we read just a moment ago, and the tragedy, the tragedy is that we absolutely can experience it and jump into that parade and get to the wedding feast and feast and feast and feast for days on end, but we can also absolutely miss it completely. And I think maybe the problem between the wise bridesmaids and the foolish bridesmaids is found somewhere in verse 5. In verse 5, we read, as the bridegroom was delayed, all of them became drowsy and slept. Drowsy and slept. Can I talk for just a moment about what it's like to be weary in waiting? Because let's be clear, there's nothing wrong in this parable with falling asleep. They're not condemned for falling asleep. It's not a sin for them to fall asleep. They fall asleep because they're weary. But the truth is, anyone who has waited for anything significant for a significant amount of time, you understand, maybe even in this room, that it is easy to grow weary in waiting. Somebody here is waiting for something. There are those in this room and those who are tuned in right now who are waiting for a cure, And there are some who are waiting for uh, a healing that moves even beyond a cure. There are some who are waiting for a relationship to be reconciled, for there to be a repair in the thing that was breached. For some, we wait for a second chance. We wait for forgiveness. We wait for a new thing to start. We wait for an old thing to stop. And the longer we wait, and the longer the bridegroom delays, we become weary weary if you are weary in your waiting no one is condemning you neither me neither the ones around you nor this parable condemns you in fact if you're weary waiting on something today maybe what you need to hear is this (laughs) the bridegroom comes the bridegroom in this story 
comes. He shows up. And it's intriguing to me that he shows up at the hour at which he shows up. It's midnight. Midnight means something in the Bible. At midnight, that hour is symbolic. It's emblematic of the darkest hour. Now, we know celestially it may not be the darkest physical literal hour, but symbolically it represented that darkest, most abject hour of suffering and loneliness and despair. And time and again, all through the Bible, God shows up at midnight to deliver God's people. It was midnight that God issued the final plague, and it was the last straw for Pharaoh. Out of my land, he sent the Israelites at midnight into freedom. It was midnight that David got up to pray to give thanks for the way that God had been delivering him at midnight. It was midnight when Paul and Silas were found singing hymns in prison. And in their singing, the earth beneath their feet began to quake and the prison doors flung open and liberation came and comes at midnight. If you are in the darkest hour of, of your life, you need to understand that you are poised in the perfect position for God to show up and show off because that is when God does God's best work at midnight. So it's not about sleep. That's not why the foolish were foolish. It's about expectations. Only five of the bridesmaids showed up that night prepared for the possibility that the bridegroom would run into traffic, would slow down and delay. The five who were foolish, they came that night with their lamps ready for the party. They wanted to be there. They came with enough oil for him to show up between, say, 8.30 and 10.45. And is that not how we approach God still? God, I really want to encounter you. I want to be overwhelmed by the love of God. I want to be transformed in such a way that nothing's ever the same. And so I'm going to ask that you really show up between right here and right here. Now, don't mess with this over here because I've really worked hard at putting all that back together. And that's finally working for me. And please don't, don't mess up with these, these relationships, the family. We have worked so hard. And financially, I've finally gotten to a place where we're above water. And if you would just not meddle with anything there. But, but, but if you would come, uh, let's say, between 11 o'clock and 12 o'clock noon on Sunday. No later than noon. No later even if the songs go longer and the preaching goes on and on and on. Uh, between 11 and 12, if, even if the invitation is happening and there are people in the aisles giving the life to you. Please just show up in such a way in that one hour and I'll give you maybe, oh, two, two times a month. Is that agreeable? I'll give you two times a month between 11 and 12 and man, I really want you to just just give it to me. I mean, lay it on me. Love me. Show me the love. But what if <laughs> what if everything that Jesus has ever said about the kingdom is true? Because if it is then what if we're looking for him with just enough oil between here and here and in this box and this one, but yet he's, he's trying to show up in 10,000 ways here 
and, and, and 5,000 ways there and 100,000 ways here. And he's turning some soil over and is causing some trouble. And he's created a little bit of a headache over here. And he's allowed something to happen that is uncomfortable over here so that you might meet him in the trouble at midnight. But I'd really rather you just show up right here. What made the wise wise was they brought enough oil for the possibility that the bridegroom might just come on the bridegroom's own terms, which is exactly what the bridegroom does. I had a choir director when we were in gospel choir together in college, and he would say from time to time, God may not come when you want him, but he's always right on time. Is it possible that the very thing you're hungering and thirsting for, the very thing that you want to fill your soul with, the bread and juice that you want to consume, has been available all along? When Paul tells us about this supper, this is how he reflects upon it. Paul says, for I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the same night in which he was betrayed took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, Take, eat, this is my body which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same manner, he took also the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. This do as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. And then as an editorial comment, Paul adds on these words. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death till he comes. Beloved, it's not just bread and it's not just juice. When you and I gather to eat this bread and drink this juice, it is a statement that we are making to the world and to God that we desire to consume the brokenness of Christ, the poured out life of Christ, so that in his brokenness and poured out life, something will happen in us that starts now and keeps coming into the future. This table is for everybody. It's the Lord's table. That means if you desire to receive Christ, you can eat this bread and drink this cup. But understand this, when we eat this bread and drink this cup, we are on the hook. Something then is required of us. It means that we pay close attention to the way in which Christ was broken. We pay close attention to the way in which Christ, through his own shed blood, was poured out. And if we drink the cup and if we eat the bread, we are stating before the God of the cosmos that we are willing to yield ourselves to that very same way. Break me. Pour me out until you come again. Let's pray together. Lord, in this moment we do pray that you would undergird with courage the faith of someone in this room who perhaps has grown weary in their waiting. 
We pray that in the eating of this bread and the drinking of this cup, you would remind them that there is greater a power in them than any power outside of them threatening to undo them. We ask that you would bless this bread and bless this cup as we eat it in your memory and in total devotion to your way. In the name of Christ, the Lord of life, amen.